Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Ball. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by Buxton. Look, they have incredible mobile and predictive analytics. Just go check it out at buxtonco.com. That's B-U-X-T-O-N-C-O.com. It's incredible stuff. We use it at our shop at Bull Realty, and uh, it's amazing. Just go check it out. All right. Well, we have an amazing show for you today. You know, one of the uh, sectors that's uh, been doing really well and growing over the years uh, is student housing, that part of multifamily that's geared to students. And it's it's interesting because, you know, with COVID, uh, student housing you know, did take a hit, right? There was a lot of schools kind of shut down and, and, and uh, not work from home, school from home, right? But uh, what's been going on since then? You know, what's the future look like? Please welcome my guest. It's Carl Whitaker. He's Director of Research and Analysis with RealPage. Carl, it's good to see you. Michael, good to see you as always. Thanks for having me. Now, for those of you who are, are listening to the show, which is about 60,000 of you, <laughs> and less of you that actually watch the show, uh, Carl's got a bunch of books behind him. And Carl, have you read all those books? <laughs> yeah, I figured if we're talking student, I would get in my scholar mode and show off the uh the, the books behind me, but I'll have to admit I'm cheating. It's actually a wallpaper. <laughs> it's a wallpaper. I love it. Well, Carl, talking about student housing, I guess it did take a hit uh, during COVID. Here we are, uh, second quarter, really, of 2022. How's how student housing performing? Yeah, honestly, Michael, you summarized it perfectly there at the onset. Student housing took a pretty big hit in 2020 and 2021. Um, interestingly enough, 2020 had been shaping up to be a pretty solid year for performance, but uh, obviously the pandemic undid any positive momentum. I think if you fast forward to today, though, we're seeing that a lot of that momentum has returned. Uh, Pre-lease occupancy through April sits at its highest level on record. If you go back at least 10 years since RealPage has been tracking the space, uh, rent growth is in a similar manner at a record level through April. So I think all things being equal, we're probably going to see a lot of record numbers for student housing performance uh, for the 2022 leasing year. Wow. So are, where are we in comparison to 2019 as far as occupancy and rental rates and things? Yeah, and I actually love that you said 2019 there because I think we've been using that as a benchmark of the, uh, the pre-pandemic norm, if you will. And if you look at pre-lease occupancy today, so the, the, the share of beds that are leased for the upcoming academic year, uh, we're approaching 70% nationally. In 2019, that number uh, was closer to 65%. So we're seeing wow. a pretty big improvement from the, the pre-pandemic norm. And just to kind of give you some scale uh, versus where we were this time last year, pre-lease occupancy hadn't even hit 60%. So we were more than 10% behind a quote-unquote normal rate of leasing. And I think that that just simply pointed to, hey, students weren't sure what the 2021 academic year was going to look like. They thought maybe they had some ideas, but then some changes came in over the previous months. So uh, all this to say 2022 is looking like a very quote-unquote normal year, and I think that's it certainly encouraged some uh, pre-leasing uh, demand among students. And what variations are you seeing, Carl, on student housing performance geographically around the country? 
Yeah, the geographic disparity over the past two years was arguably one of the key storylines in the space. We saw that many of the West Coast schools that were first to issue remote learning, understandably so, had some of the weakest pre-lease occupancy. Uh, the University of Southern California comes to mind um, off the top of my head here, where this time last year, it was something like 25% of beds were pre-leased and really didn't move much more than that before the end of the year. So you had significant vacancies in those places that did have more restrictive uh, on-campus environments. Conversely, places, particularly in the Southeast, uh, if you went up into Virginia, uh, some of the Florida and Texas schools, some of those campuses barely even took a hiccup. You know, it, was, it wasn't uncommon to see places like Appalachian State or Clemson at 80 to 90% pre-leased this time last year, which again mirrors a quote unquote normal year. So there was big geographic disparity. We're starting to see that normalize. There is still a little bit of, a, uh, of an overhang effect or a hangover effect at some of the California schools, uh, a handful of urban centric schools. You know, if you look at the University of Houston or uh, University of Texas at Austin, still working to get back to 2019 levels. But the good news is, is the geographic disparity does appear to be uh, moderating and at least normalizing and, and, and back to a more normal level. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. We're talking with Carl Whitaker with RealPage about student housing. And, and Carl, how does the job market impact student housing? It seemed like when it was hard for folks to find jobs, a lot of people were going back to school. Now, if you want a job, there's plenty of jobs. Is that impact in student housing? You know, it's fascinating you bring that up, Michael. That's been one of our favorite talking points over the past few years. It's, it's really interesting to delve in that economy versus enrollment, student housing slash economic interplay. Um, what we've seen is that some of the early, if you go back to 2010, one of the, the, the key theses for the industry was that in a recessionary environment, that would drive more folks back to school simply because their job prospects were more limited. There wasn't a lot of availability of jobs. It's not to say that that hasn't happened over the past year or two, but if you look at the types of job losses that were most common, it was mainly in service industry jobs. It was sectors that weren't necessarily going to college previously and probably weren't flocking back to uh, the college ranks uh, as a result of the downturn. I think if you look at the, uh, the more important driver for enrollment growth, I think it's probably demographics. And what you're seeing is that we don't have as many, let's call it 18 to 20 year olds today as we did uh, back in 2008, 2009, when enrollment really hit its peak level in terms of the, the pace of acceleration, I should say. So we are starting to see um, you know, improving enrollment numbers. And I think that that does indicate, uh, especially students that elected to take a gap year are starting to come back to the college ranks. But I don't think we're seeing as much of a economic driving, or I should say poor economic performance driving enrollment growth as we did historically. I think that those numbers are more of a demographics game than an, than an economics game. And how do those factors impact your forecast? What do you expect moving forward in student housing performance? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because we were talking about that at Interface Student Housing, uh, one of the big student housing conferences here a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of the consensuses or consensus uh, that we heard among a lot of the panelists was that 
the outlook over the next, let's call it two to four years, is probably at its most favorable level that we've seen in at least a few years because you do have almost a, in some instances, you almost have two classes of incoming freshmen that maybe took a gap year. And then as they start to move out into the off-campus sector, uh, that's going to inform a lot more demand. You just have simply more students going to school than you did two or three years ago. So our outlook has improved as the uh, as, as the return to normal has come about. Uh, one other factor, too, that I think is probably going to inform some stronger performance, maybe more at a localized university level, but we are seeing construction levels pull back significantly from their, let's call it 2015 to 2016 level uh, something like 25,000 beds scheduled to deliver this coming academic year. In 2016-2017, that number was closer to 60,000. So I think some of these schools that really, just candidly speaking, probably needed a break from new supply, your Florida State, your University of Florida's, uh, University of Texas at Austin, maybe even University of Georgia there, not too far from your backyard. Uh, some of those schools that had a lot of construction probably needed a little bit of a break just so demand could catch back up. And I think we're going to see that over the next two to three years. So long story short, I guess to summarize there, our outlook has improved over the past uh, two or three leasing seasons versus where it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to hear your forecast and then hear some of the factors uh, impacting it, like new supply and um, so on, on new supplies that slowing down because of financing or is that slowing down because it, the past of COVID is that slowing down with construction costs or is it site availability or is it all the above? Yeah, I think the answer is yes to that. It's, it's <laughs> a little bit of all, all three or four of those. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the site availability angle is an interesting one. A lot of these schools that have been built out over the past decade, those most attractive right next door to campus uh, locations have already been snatched up and it's just a little bit harder to justify development further from campus. You don't typically achieve as, uh, as high of a rental rate, let's say half a mile from campus. And as such, it makes it harder for de development to be justified. So that's where the construction costs would come into play. Uh, financing, I think we're seeing some of that, but I do also, uh, I also think that some of the construction pullback here as of late has just been simply permitting eased during the pandemic. We saw that with conventional housing as well, but it was more of a short-lived blip on the radar. I think for student construction, you're actually seeing more of an appetite-driven slowdown. Eventually, I think it'll come back up somewhere in between its current level and its 2010s decade norm, but I don't think we're gonna get back to the 50, 60,000 beds that we're delivering circa 2014, 2015, 2016, et cetera. Yeah, well, that could be good news for the existing assets, right? And, and Carl, to put it in perspective for our audience, the rental increases that you saw in the last year in regular multifamily around the country, if you just average it, um, compared to student housing, um, what's the comparison there? I know we've had some really big increases in, in apartment rents. Yeah, there's been some big increases. What we've seen on conventional, just to give a little scale here, year-over-year uh, -year growth through April on the conventional multifamily housing side is, let's call it, between 15 and 16% rent increases. And that's about four times greater than the previous decade average. Interestingly enough, the student figure is about three times greater than its previous decade average. Uh, that number's coming in about 5.5% for year-over-year rent growth. So, 
even though the absolute scale of the numbers does differ, the relative outperformance is pretty close between student and conventional. And again, I think that points to just overall improved demand metrics at many schools uh, and within many uh, uh, student or many conventional housing markets. Something else I think that may be driving some of the student strength when it comes to rent growth and occupancy as well is that a lot of properties nearby campus that are conventional assets have such limited availability that students that maybe would have been renting one of those conventional assets or maybe electing to live in a student asset today because they just can't find a unit that isn't a student asset. Yeah. Is it fair to say that student housing performance wise has less volatility than the standard apartment market when you look at his historically? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The The analogy we've used a lot is that student housing is a lot like your leadoff hitter in baseball, where it's not going to hit you necessarily a ton of home runs, but it doesn't tend to strike out all that much either. And even in the, the depths of 2020 and 2021, uh, you know, rent growth held mainly positive occupancy wasn't too far off of its previous decade average. Individual schools obviously have some pretty big variation, of course, but, you know, if you're a well-diversified portfolio, you generally can tend to underwrite and expect pretty consistent performance from year to year. Yeah. And that, that should drive uh, investor interest uh, in student housing, right? Just the, the safety of it, uh, lack of volatility there. Uh, what do you see for transaction volume in the student housing world? How's that trending? Yeah, that's been a big, uh, that's been one of the big investment theses for a long time is just the stability of the sector draws in some investment interest. And I think we really saw that happen here in the past few weeks, as a matter of fact, uh, for folks that maybe aren't quite as uh, uh, up to date on the sector, uh, Blackstone acquired American Campus Communities or ACC. ACC was the only publicly traded REIT after a 2017 or 2018 um, acquisition of EDR was the, the, the other REIT at the time. So, uh, you know, the, the fact that private capital acquired a REIT, took it private once again, I think shows that there's a lot of investor interest out there. And just to kind of give you some ballpark numbers, through January and February 2022, about $12 billion worth of student housing properties were trading on a trailing 12-month basis. And that was more or less at the peak level that we saw in 2018, whenever uh, Graystar had acquired EDR. So uh, that number is only going to go up. I think this Blackstone ACC acquisition was like $11 billion, if I remember correctly. So we're going to see that number increase a lot here in the near term. Uh, but I think the, the broader trend was showing that, hey, the stability of the industry over the past 12-ish months was probably pulling in some additional investment interest as well. And Carl, what are you hearing or feeling or seeing uh, regarding uh, cap rates and, and underwriting uh, by investors these days? Yeah, the cap rates on the student housing side is a little bit harder to get our, um, our hands on. But I think if you look at just trended information or, or trended data, I should say, uh, compressing cap rates was pretty much the name of the game throughout the past decade for both conventional and for student housing assets. I do think here of late, you've seen tighter and quicker compression among conventional assets versus student housing assets. Uh, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but if memory serves me correct, it was conventional cap rates are hovering about four to 4.2% across the country right now uh, for again, conventional, which is just crazy to say that it's that tight. 
uh, student cap rates are still above 5%, but they have come down from where they were, say, five-ish years ago. So, uh, you know, I, I think we're seeing folks adjust their expectations, both uh, buyer side and seller side. I think buyer side is maybe adjusting expectations a little bit more quickly than seller side. But I think the good news is that you're seeing investment interest. And I think that that's going to be a good um, a good bellwether for the industry over the next few years, showing that student housing has created a niche as a legitimate subsector of overall multifamily housing. And it wasn't just a short-lived fad through the 2010s decade. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned the buyer underwriting. We're seeing uh, at our shop, and we have groups that sell every every property type. And on the multifamily and on the student and on the industrial, we're seeing some buyers adjust their underwriting for, for interest rates, but they're not winning the deal. So we're still seeing some um, level cap rates there. But we are starting to see uh, as brokers on our office products, on our retail products, uh, some adjustment in underwriting and some adjustment in, in, in valuation. So it'll be interesting to see uh, at the end of the second quarter kind of what the results are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll be I'll be interested to see those as well, especially among other sectors, because it'll be just curious to see how performance of other sectors has informed uh, the the buy and sell side versus how it has in multifamily. Yeah, it seems like the allocation toward uh, multifamily and uh, industrial from most every in investor is, is really powering both these sectors. Well, Carl, what would you leave our audience with to think about for uh, student housing moving forward? Yeah, I'd say with student, it's tough sometimes to give these national updates just because individual campus performance varies so, so significantly. And even within a, a given year to year comparison, you know, if you have a big delivery of a new property at one campus, that can cause performance fundamentals to hiccup for a year before they recover. So um, I guess I would say that for anybody looking at the sector or for someone that's curious to learn more, definitely do some due diligence at a, at a campus level um, in addition to some of these national level numbers that we're showing. Obviously, the national level can kind of give you a state of the industry, kind of give you a barometer. But whenever you're looking at the, uh, the localized university numbers, I think that's where the numbers can get really fragmented in some ways. So it is important to understand localized expectations as well. Yeah, and that's a good good tip there, Carl. And when we see that in every property type and, and, and sector, and it almost can come down to a property across the street from the other, it can be very, very yeah. different in almost every sector these days. Well, Carl, thanks for joining us. Good information, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. All right. If you'd like more information from Carl and the good folks at RealPage, their website is RealPage.com. Dot com. And if you'd like to uh, get an analysis on any, any of your properties, feel free to reach out to me. And if uh, we're not right to, to do it, we'll get you to the right folks. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Buxton. Take leasing, site selection, and due diligence to the next level. Make the right decisions with on-demand mobile data. Visit BuxtonCo.com. By Bull Realty. For proven commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions, contact me. My email is Michael at BullRealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success. Expert-level commercial real estate broker training. Cloud Access 1, up to 21 one-hour videos visit commercialagentsuccess.com.
Thank you for reviewing, subscribing, and sharing America's commercial real estate show.